We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26. Deuteronomy 26. Our offering for what God gives. So we'll read the entire chapter, Deuteronomy 26. We'll begin reading at verse 1. And it shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. You shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord, God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our, uh, our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I brought the first fruits of the land which, uh, which you, of which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that he may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you've commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. The day you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, that you will obey his voice. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Amen. We come to the end of the largest section in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, God is speaking to the second generation of Israel on the plains of Moab before they enter into the promised land. It's been 400 years since God made that promise to Abraham. And finally, the people are about to enter in, uh, namely with that second generation. And so the stipulations took up most of the book. 
uh, chapters four, chapters four or five through 26, uh, what Israel must do as a theocracy, what Israel must do as a covenant people when it pertains to life in the land. In order to receive or to continue in the blessings that God has given them, they must follow his commandments. And if they follow his commandments, God is pleased to bless them. So it is a conditional covenant. Do this and live. And when you consider the whole uh, section, chapters 5 through 11 dealt with general stipulations based on the Ten Commandments. And chapters 12 through 26 were specific stipulations for Israel as a body politic, also grounded in the Ten Commandments. And so chapter 26 really is an important bookend with chapter 12. It's also an important transition as we go from what they must do to the blessings and curses. The blessings they would receive if they keep the the commandments and the curses that would fall upon them if they do not. And the root of the matter, the crux of the whole matter, even with all of the Ten Commandments, really has to do with worship. How the people worshipped, who the people worshipped, and why the people worship. Because the problem that is clear throughout the history of Israel is the problem of wicked worship, the problem of disobedient worship, the problem of not following what God has said, both in worship and towards their fellow Israelites, the problem of forgetting why, how, and who we worship, which was a major problem for the people under the Old Covenant. And it's egregious when you consider the fact that God gave them a good land. It wasn't because they were mightier than any of the other nations. It wasn't because they were righteous. But God, in the preamble, God in the history of Israel, was gracious to them to give them that land. But again, as they sought to retain the land, they had to do what God had said. But God said, if you do what I say, you shall have blessings in this land and retain it uh, as a good thing. And the obedience in a lot of ways was to be thanks to God. Thank you, O oh God, for giving us this land. Thank you, O oh God, for fulfilling our prom- uh, uh, the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And newsflash, they do not do that. Spoiler alert, the people of Israel fail miserably in trying to keep the covenant because man, in his own way, cannot keep God's law, cannot keep one iota, and the people fail miserably. Now, thankfully, in Christ, there is mercy and forgiveness, and all of our sins are forgiven in Christ, past, present, and future. But the problem of wicked, disobedient worship still remains a problem under the new covenant era, still remains a problem for the church. Do we prioritize worship? Do we prioritize honoring God? Do we prioritize what God has said in his word? Or do we seek to do what we wish to do? God has given us eternal life through his son, and we, as living sacrifices, must worship him. We as living sacrifices must honor him according to what he says. And thankfully we do so knowing we are forgiven, but also doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't change the fact there's a tendency. There's always a threat. There's always that temptation to prioritize other things than God, prioritize other things than obedience to him. But as far as it concerns the old covenant people, Moses here in Deuteronomy 26 finishes the stipulations by reminding Israel the root of the matter. They must honor God in right worship for his goodness. So all centers around the worship of God, and we'll unpack what that means under two headings this evening. First of all, why we worship our good God, verses 1 through 11, 
And secondly, what we offer our good God, verses 12 through 19. So what we, why, why we worship our good God, verses 1 through 11. And then two, what we offer our good God, verses 12 through 19. Now, there's going to be some overlap, but I had to structure it somehow. Uh, so the first point, let's look at why we worship our good God, verses 1 through 11. Notice we see offering of the, of the first fruits to a faithful God, verses 1 through 3. Notice verse 1. And it shall be, notice the timing when this happens. It shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it. So notice the emphasis is going to be actually, uh, one emphasis of this section is giving. What God has given them. God gave them the land. God gave them the land. God gave them the land. God promised the land. God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we said at the outset, it's been 400 years. And now here's the second generation about to, about to enter into that promised land. It ought to be a great time of rejoicing. And the first thing Israel was supposed to do, and when they enter into that land, what every individual was supposed to do is the good things that God gave them they were supposed to recognize where that was from. So God has given them these good things. They've waited for such a long period of time. God made promises. God has fulfilled his promises. And Israel must remember. In a lot of ways, when we come to worship our God, yes, it's to worship him, but it's to be reminded of who he is. You want to know why? Because we're forgetful. We forget things all the time. We forget little trivial things all the time. And we forget the goodness of our God all the time. We forget the gospel all the time. That's why the gospel needs to be preached to us every Sunday. That's why when we preach the gospel, it's not just for the unbelievers. It's for the believers as well. To be reminded of who Christ is. Be reminded of uh, who they are grounded in. Namely, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So is a worship must be remembrance of what God has done. And so when they enter into that land, after they've entered, after they finally come to the land flowing with milk and honey, what the people were supposed to do was to bring first fruits. Verse 2, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you twice already. The Lord is giving you and put it in a basket and go to the place uh, the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. This is that bookend with Deuteronomy 12. Remember Deuteronomy 12 talks about the place where God would have his name abide, namely the place where the tabernacle and then the temple would be, the place of God's choosing. The people were not supposed to worship like the pagans in the land. They were supposed to worship in a holy way. They're supposed to worship in a set-apart way. They're supposed to be different from the pagans. They are supposed to be different from the people around them. So the bookend, really, for this larger section in the stipulation section, 12 and 26, is worship. Is worship. You know, when it comes to all the commandments, they center in around that one thing, worship and honoring God, worshiping him on the day and at the times he's chosen, but also presenting our bodies, new covenant application, new, our bodies as a living, living sacrifice day by day. And again, that problem always lurks of wanting to worship like the world. Well, see, the pagans in that neighboring town, in that neighboring country, they, 
they engage in this weird ritual and Baal seemed to give them good things. Let's do that instead. Because God doesn't seem to be giving us anything right now. We're such mercenaries in worship. We only worship God for the things he gives a lot of the times, right? What, what's the point of worshiping God if he doesn't give us good things? I mean, Israel said this in Malachi's day. What's the point of worshiping God if he doesn't give us good? That's exactly what they say. After they've been uh, kicked out of the land, after they've gone into exile, after they've returned, Israel still doesn't get it. I mean, that's how fickle we are. We forget, we forget, we forget the good things that God has done. And so that was one of the reasons they were, when they entered into the land, uh, they were supposed to devote the nations to destruction. And so that, or for one reason, A, God was judging them, and B, they didn't worship like the other nations. That's why they were doing that very thing. You can't be like the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the whateverites. You cannot be like them. And when one thing important to highlight, too, when it came to worship and the Old Covenant Israel, I mean, we've gone through a lot of laws already, right? Hopefully you see they were meant to be a good thing, right? I think sometimes our modern understanding, our modern evangelical understanding of the Old Testament, where the rules of Israel were just meant to be a drudgery. There is meant to be a thing we just had. God did it for their benefit and for their good. The same thing is true for their old covenant worship. Yes, it seems very tedious to us. I mean, we struggle with e easier worship comparatively to what they have. But even that worship was meant to be a delight. The Sabbath day was meant to be a delight. It was all meant to be a good and blessed thing. And it was meant to be a delight and for the benefit of Israel. And Israel did not take that benefit and do what they were supposed to do. They break the covenant that God had made with them. That's going to come up more, especially with the blessings and curses. And Deuteronomy 30, he just tells them straight up, you're going to break all this. You're going to be sent into exile, and then I'll bring you back. And we'll talk about how the bringing back refers to Christ in that moment, but that's, you know, a couple weeks away. But in any case, uh, the, the stipulations were meant to be a good thing. I know some of them are harsh, but they were meant to be a good thing for them. So, but in any case, Israel, when they enter in, first fruits. Lord, here's what you've given me. I will give back to you. He unpacks why. But notice the declaration. Notice how God's old covenant becomes very personal. Verse three. There's the corporate aspect and there's the individual aspect. Notice verse three. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those, day, those days and say to him, I declare. So this is a liturgical aspect. You know, come, uh, what God has, uh, does verse, and what we say back to God. But I declare today to the Lord, your God, speaking to the priest who's perhaps acting on behalf. There could be a. Uh, a variant reading there it could say, my God, shouldn't you know, cause us to lose sleep at night. In any case, I declare today to the Lord, your or my God, that I have come to the country which the Lord swore our, uh, to, uh, to our fathers to give to us. So the individual takes his first fruits and there's a corporate remembrance. The individual comes to worship and says, look what God has done. I have entered into the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it ought to be a great time of rejoicing, a great time of praise, a great time of honor to God most high. The first fruits was a sign of God's blessing, blessing to the people and blessing to the individual who partakes in those 
blessings. And so their worship was a recognition of all that they had and a recognition of all that Israel was supposed to have uh, in those promises. And there is an important church application. We believe that God saves individuals, right? But individuals come and be the church, right? That's important to understand. An individual Christian cannot live on an island. An individual, individual Christian cannot be on their own. They have to be with the brethren. They have to gather with the brethren. That's why in Hebrews 10, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, even as you see the day approaching, that you might stir one another up to love and good works. I mean, we need to be with brethren. We need to stir one another up. We need not to hear echo chambers all the time. We need to be encouraged and built up in the things of God. I mean, how often does Paul say, build one another up? Build one another up. Don't tear one another, one another down, but build one another up. We must be with our brethren, and we must worship in a specific way that God has said, where we must worship him acceptably, for he is a consuming fire. So you see this here. The Israelite individual comes at the proper time, probably the, uh, perhaps the, the Feast of first fruits. He comes and he says, Lord, thank you for all these things that you have given to me. Brings it to that priest. And notice the ritual can, or the, uh, the, the first fruits, uh, yeah, I guess ritual uh, continues, or worship continues. Verse four Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And perhaps, too, this first fruit includes the priest's portion. Remember the Levites? They didn't get any inheritance. They only got, they lived off of what people gave them. So perhaps when they come, they give that to them there. But again, notice uh, 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 he says, he, so he brings it there. And I think as we'll see in verses 12 and following, there must be a daily recollection at the family and private altar of all that God has done. A daily reminder of all the benefits, a daily reminder of the gospel, a daily reminder of Christ, but also a weekly reminder as well for the new covenant people. That's why we believe in private growth, private uh, private. Um, private means of growth and the and the public means of grace both go hand in hand we have to have both of those things and so he's going to come at the uh, public altar and he's going to to recount all that God has done publicly uh, for them with a personal application and so notice he goes on to recount all that Israel has done verse 5 he shall answer and say before the Lord your God my father was a Syrian. Why does he say Syrian there? That's interesting. It's referring to Jacob in this instance. And remember, Jacob's wives were Syrian, or they lived in Aramea or uh, Aram. So they were, they were Aramean. Probably the emphasis here is he was landless for a long period of time. I mean, think about it. The patriarchs, yes, they were in the land, but doesn't seem right. I mean, they haven't really possessed it quite yet. I mean, they're still waiting for its fullness, and especially Jacob. I mean, Jacob had to flee his brother. He had to go, you know, work for his uncle. His uncle duped him twice or once or twice or however many times, and he had to live there for, what, 21 years, something like that, and to be under his uncle. And then he finally left, and he's wandering. He's coming back. He's, I mean, he wanders. He spends most of his life wandering when they finally come into Shechem and they dwell there and that's all great. And then struggles with his kids. I mean, there's so many problems with him, but that's why he's probably called a Syrian here. 
because he wanders. He's landless. And the key thread throughout this is praising God for the land that he gives. And so he says, about to perish. I mean, you're reading Genesis. You know, if you didn't know the end, it's very suspenseful, right? I mean, you're like, boy, I mean, he's getting old. I mean, Joseph's all, you know, Joseph's sent away, but now Joseph's in Egypt. Like, what's going to happen? There's a famine in the land. You're kind of worried and concerned, or at least if you didn't know the end, you would be worried and concerned. Are God's promises sure? Are God's promises true? Will God promise, as he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that in them, in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed? The answer to that question is yes. Well, he was about to perish. What happens? He went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And it was all because of God's providence with Joseph. What man means for evil, God means for good. The reason Joseph was sold into slavery was, you know, it wasn't until he was 30, so like 13, 12, 13 years before he, you know, he was in slavery for that long, before he finally, you know, rose to power. Why? Why was all, why did all that have to happen to get Jacob and the people however small they were, to Egypt, that they wouldn't die in the famine. That was God's plan of salvation, to save the seed and save the people. So they go down there. You see this unfold in Genesis 37 uh, through 50 as they make their way to uh, Egypt. There they remain, and things don't go well in Egypt. After a guy named a different Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph. This is in Exodus 1 and 2. We see that there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous, just like God had promised physically to Abraham, right? Physical seed. God had said to Abraham, you shall have a descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And God is faithful to his promise. They become great. They become mighty. Oh, verse six, though. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us and laid hard bondage on us. Israel grew, but they're mistreated. They're treated harshly. They're treated like second-class citizens. They're treated as slaves. And it's so bad that they cry out. So bad that they call upon their God. And notice, verse, it says, verse 7, We cried out to the Lord, our God, the God of our fathers. And the Lord our, uh, heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. It's one of the most special passages in the Bible. There's, I mean, it's all special, right? But Genesis 2, or Genesis, Exodus 2. Exodus 2, 24. He says, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children, and God acknowledged them. Now, the language of God remembering is speaking in the manner of men. God knows all things, and God brings about his plan according to his purposes, right? But that's speaking for us. You ever cry out for a long period of time, and it seems like God does not remember you, or God does not hear you, or God is not listening to you, or it seems like God's promises aren't coming true? It seems like God doesn't remember. Well, for Israel, if they had been you know, passed down, hey, God said that, you know, we would have a land. God said, you know, that there'd be a great descendants, which there are, but we don't have a land, the land yet. They finally, God remembers and hears 
You can, according to the manner of men. But it's a comforting thing to be reminded. God knows and God remembers his people. So he hears their cries. And so the Lord brings them up out of Egypt. Uh, Exodus 12 is the actual Exodus part of things. And then there's 28 other chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, That's funny, isn't it? The book of Exodus ends at 12, right? And then there's 28 more chapters. Because the point of Exodus is God's dwelling. (laughs) That's the point. Driving to the point where the cloud comes upon uh, the tabernacle at Sinai. God's dwelling and God's worship. uh, The house of God in Exodus 40. But in any case, we see the thing we know with Moses. We see the, you know, the, the battles with Pharaoh. The battles to show that God is the one true God. He, he performs great signs and wonders. Verse 8. He brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. He brought them out. He brought them from Egypt and he's brought them to Canaan. Verse 9. He has brought us to this place and given us this land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. See, as the people are about to enter in to Canaan, about to enter in and take the land on the plains of Moab, they must remember the Exodus. They must remember the promises of God. And that language in quotes there, a land, or at least the New King James has it in quotes, a land flowing with milk and honey. You know what that refers to? Exodus 3. When Yahweh appears to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am who I am. My you know, ghosts tell, tell the people I am has sent you. He says, I'm going to bring them up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God has fulfilled that promise. He's brought, brought them to this good land that flows with milk and honey. And notice how personal it is. Verse 10. And now behold. I have brought you the first fruits of the land, which you, O Lord, have given me. Every Israelite who experienced and entered into that land, waiting, who waited for long periods of time, it was applicable to them. They received that inheritance. They received the benefits. They received the goodness. And as such, they were to come and worship God for his redemption, but also what that redemption meant for them personally. You have given me. They received that land from God. They received that goodness from God. They received that benefit. And thus they were to come and worship at the stated times uh, to bring their first fruits. And notice it was meant to be a day of rejoicing, verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. And you shall set it before the Lord your God. And worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. God does, has done this great work. God has done a great work, not just for the nation, but for you. You come and you worship God most high. This is why we worship. This is why we gather, dear brethren. This is why we come to church, or at least it ought to be why we come to church on the Lord's day. It's to to come to worship our God for the salvation that he's given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who is perfect in every way. Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but took on human flesh for us men. All four of the major creeds say that when they talk about the incarnation. For us men and for our salvation. That is why we worship. We worship because we've been redeemed. We worship because we've been changed. We worship because the God who we were once enemies with has made us friends in the blood of the Lamb. We've been reconciled. We have been uh, propitiated or God's wrath has been propitiated. Our sins have been taken away. Should we not then worship? Even in Hebrews 12, before he talks about worshiping God acceptably, he says we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, even building up to that, Hebrews 1 through 11, Christ, greater than the angels, Christ, greater than Moses, Christ, greater than Abraham, Christ, greater than the old covenant. Christ is that mediator of a better covenant. Christ, better than all the sacrifices, all in him, all points to him based on what he has done. And it's in him we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's why you must never forget what God has done in Christ on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis as well. And that is why we gather. That is why we worship. We must become and praise God for what he has done, but also be reminded of what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully it's not a day of drudgery. Hopefully it's not a day where you're like, oh, I got to get out of bed. No, no, hopefully it's a great day of rejoicing. We get to go into the house of the Lord for better as one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. At least that's how it should be. (laughs) I understand we still have remaining corruption, but brethren, that's how it really should be. We ought to delight in it. We ought to love it. We ought to be thrilled for it. Uh, My dear daughter, hopefully it stays the same, but she still sort of does, but maybe a year or so ago, she'd be like, we get to go to church. That's how it should be, brother. We get to go to church because that's why we worship. We worship God for all that he has done uh, toward us in the salvation in Christ. So that's why we worship. Let's then look secondly at what we offer our God in worship, verses 12 through 19. So see how important it is for the people of Israel to come and worship God most high. And so this worship and uh, so uh, what we offer our God, our good God, verse 12 through 19. In verses 12 through 15, uh, we talk about money. Sorry. Uh, but verses 12 through 15, we talk about the triennial tithe. Uh, we've seen that already in Deuteronomy 14. We saw the annual tithe. Uh, the people were to give a tenth of their produce. Certainly we see that implication in verses 1 through uh, 11. Uh, but there was an annual one and there was a triennial. So every three years. And in that third year, it was for a specific people. It took a special benevolence, you could say, uh, for the people. And it was for those who are landless. As again, land seems to be the theme that runs through, uh, another theme that runs through this section. When you finish laying aside all the tithe of your increase, verse 12, in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, who it doesn't have a portion. God is his portion. The stranger the fatherless, and the widow. Those who are destitute, those who didn't have anything, those who didn't have such things were meant to still partake in the inheritance promised. Again, Israel as a theocracy uh, was meant to care for all of them, not a communism. It wasn't communism. Remember, we talked about how there's still the, the people had uh, land or their or fields. They would, you know, till the fields. They would glean from the fields and harvest the fields, but leave some 
for the poor. So the poor, it wasn't just a handout. The poor would still come and still take it. Uh, but the poor should still be cared for as well. There should be a time where they should uh, receive some benefits of the land, which is what you see with this third year of tithing. One manifestation of covenant keeping would be the care of the least of them uh, in their midst, which is certainly one of the emphases of the prophets uh, in a negative way. Israel did not care for the least of them. Israel did not care for the fatherless and the widow and the stranger. And remember, too, they didn't have, again, social security and they didn't have, uh, you know, you know, work safe and they didn't have all sorts of, you know, indeed.com where they could go find jobs. They really were, you know, destitute. They really needed uh, aid. And so the people were supposed to bring this every three years, this tithe for the people, the landless people. They were not supposed to show partiality. Showing partiality still remained a problem for the church in the book of James. That's why he writes to say, don't show partiality. I mean, that's one way of hypocrisy. I get there's people from different economic backgrounds. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor free, slave nor free, male nor female. What that means is, is all can come in and worship. All can come in and praise God. All can come in and give him glory and praise and honor. And God can save people doesn't mean there aren't genders. It doesn't mean there aren't people of different, you know, financial statuses. It doesn't mean there aren't, you know, different races that can come and worship God or uh, the different types, but they all get to come in and worship God most high. There should be no partiality in the household of God most high. So that's, you know, still a problem in James's day, still a problem in our day as well. It can happen for sure. Uh, we ought not to be uh, hypocrites in that way, unfortunately. Uh, we can be hypocrites with our money. Uh, but in any case, he goes on to ex explain. Uh, and the location, too, for the triennial uh, tithe was different. You didn't have to go to Shiloh or the place where God had chosen. You did it at the gates at your own city. So you kind of see a corporate sort of worship with all the people at the place God chooses. But also, there are times when you can stay close to home. And so he says in verse 13, the reason they may eat, verse 12, that they may eat with you in your, uh, within your gates and be filled. So they may have their fill. And then verse 13, then you shall say. So again, there's a lot of declaration, what God has done and what you say. Yeah, it's kind of what worship is, right? What God has done and what we say back to God. And what God also says to us. But verse 13, I have removed the holy tithes from my house. And also given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them here. Remember, the substance of the entire covenant is a law covenant. Keep these commandments, certainly based on the goodness of God, so that God may bless based upon goodness. Uh, but they had to keep it. They had to do what God had said. They had to do it cheerfully, but they ought to have done it as God has said. And so he's recounting, God, here's where I've done. Here's where I'm helping the people here. Here's what's going on. Here's this declaration. They have not transgressed the covenant in this way, or at least that's how someone should say it. Now, do they? Do they actually do this? Do they actually, could they actually say I've not transgressed the covenant? Probably not. But this is what they should have done. This is what they were supposed to do when they entered in the land and engaged in that triennial tithe. And notice verse 14, I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, 
nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. Probably what that means here, or the, the, what's going on here, has to do with the purity washings or ritual purity. There was the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. It was all about how one approached unto God. One, if it was in the holy category, they were always clean. But if someone, uh, uh, always clean. So it was about how one approached unto God most high. Notice, even when they came for the tribe, uh, the tithe, they had to approach God right. And the tithe was only meant to be given to God. It could not be used for any sort of purpose connected with any of those things. And so perhaps when in mourning was when perhaps one had touched uh, a corpse and defiled themselves and became unclean and they had to go through the ritual. Uh, Leviticus 7.20 highlights that. Uh, again, the uh, overarching unclean aspect, unclean use is also there as well, uh, but also uh, not supposed to engage in a foreign cult which is what uh, for the dead means there. Uh, remember the, some of the, the, um, uh, the nations surrounding them, they had the Baals and the Molechs that they worshiped and they offered up their children. So weren't supposed to do that very thing. And so the money was supposed to go straight to God. That's why it's called first fruits, right? It goes straight to God. It was not used in any sort of other way. It goes straight to God. That's what he is saying there. He brings it to God. And an important modern application when it comes to finances, you know, I hate talking about finances, but finances actually comes up a lot in the Bible. Um, someone asked recently about fellowship and what that means in Acts 2.42, and I do think it does refer to giving. Um, koinonia and koinos, the words for fellowship, uh, usually when they're found in the Bible, they're not all that common, actually. But when they're found in the Bible, they're either referring to our fellowship with God our fellowship in the truth, or our fellowship by way of giving. That's the three. We simply jump to shoot in the breeze and having gatherings, which isn't necessarily bad, but uh, we gather for a reason around God Almighty. But finances was certainly one way one could share in and care for one another. And so giving really is an act of worship. Giving to God is an act of worship. Money is really a hard thing to give up, isn't it? I am naturally a miser. I'm naturally that type of person. I'm Scrooge that way. You know, we just, it's just so hard for us to give up our coin, isn't it? Or our doing, as I said on Sunday night. You know, it's so difficult for us to be able to hear. It's easy to say, I'll just tithe my time, right? That's kind of an excuse people. I'm going to tithe my time. I'm going to volunteer. I don't, has anybody ever heard that before? I've heard that one a lot. I'm going to tithe my time. I'm just going to just use my time. I'm not going to give any money. That's easy to say. There's a reason the Bible says we give our first fruits. That's before tax, by the way. Now, also, too, when it comes, to, I've said often when it comes to the new covenant, uh, the new covenant era is there's no specific amount. Tithe was of the old covenant era. 10% is certainly good. But typically what happens because we're misers, when I say 10%, you know what people do? <laughs> they don't go, well, I'll do 20. They do, I'll do five. That's usually what people think, right? That's what people ponder and think, or at least that's how I thought when I learned that sort of thing. And I think people are as nefarious as I am, but maybe not, maybe not. Maybe I should assume people are as bad as I am, but typically we think that sort of way. Now, a caveat when it comes to giving, you all know I don't know, right? I don't know what people give. I don't want to know what people give. I don't want to be that pastor. You know, I don't want to do that. But when the Bible talks about giving, I have to talk about that very thing. 
And the Bible really is, does talk about it often when it comes to, you know, it doesn't matter how much we make. It's important about how we give. Second Corinthians 8 speaks about this. Second Corinthians 8. So you don't think I'm nuts. I'm sure you all think I'm nuts, but a little less nuts than what you might think. Second Corinthians 8. He talks about the Macedonian church in verses, really, I mean, the whole section, 8 and 9, talk about giving. But I'm not going to talk about all of that. Uh, but verse 2, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. The churches in Macedonia were poor, yet they gave. Now, brother, I know we have an inflationary period going on. I get all that. I'm not trying to take away the fact that it ain't cheap to live in BC, but that in a great trial of affliction, they gave out of their poverty. For I bear witness, and perhaps uh, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, their ability, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. And one way they manifested their love for the Lord was their love for the saints who were in great need. Romans 15 also speaks about this. 1 Corinthians 16 speaks about giving as well for those in need. And Philippians, you can turn to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Remember when Paul's in prison at this time, Paul doesn't get, you know, 125,000K given to him like prisoners do in our uh, modern Canadian prison system. He got nothing. The only way he got something was on the generosity of Christians. And so the Philippians did care for him. He talks about how they shared with him uh, in giving, uh, for, um, uh, caring for his necessities. He says in verse 18, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. So yes, if giving is one's service, that is a good thing. If generosity is one's gift, that is a good thing. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So giving, we all ought to be cheerful givers. We ought to be obedient in giving. We ought to be cheerful when we do that very thing, because hopefully we recognize where it comes from in the first place. And so that's what this one is doing. I have, uh, uh, I have not, I, uh, uh, I have not eaten. He brings it to God. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God in verse fourteen of Deuteronomy, and have done according to all that you have commanded. And notice his prayer for blessing. This is sometimes hard for us, but listen to what he says. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel in the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is not a health, wealth, prosperity text, although I wouldn't put it past Joel Osteen to use it uh, for uh, some sort of name it and claim it type sermon. Uh, but it's important to see the order here. Notice, God, look down. Notice that comfort there. 
Lord, look down from your holy habitation and hear. Once again, God is pleased to bless the people individually, and he's pleased to bless the people corporately, just like he will punish the people individually and punish the people corporately, even for an individual's wickedness. So all of Israel had to be on board uh, when it came to uh, life in the land. But notice how God hears. Oh, Lord, look down from your holy habitation. See and observe from your heavenly dwelling. See this uh, uh, temple reference in Psalm 26. uh, God's heavenly dwelling is what it means here. And we pray this way. God, look down and consider us. God, look down and recognize us. God, look down upon your servant and listen. Look down and bless your people and the land which you have given us. Notice it's not a health, wealth thing, but he's calling upon, he's reminding God of what God has done, which you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's noticed the order. God gives the good land. God's people acknowledge that by giving and then trust in his promise to bless all the more. This really is the book in a nutshell in a lot of ways. Yes, the the, 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 the substance of it is a works covenant. God bless, but you see, God bless by giving them the land. Keep the covenant, Israel, and God will give you more blessings. You see, in a lot of ways, this was a prayer of faith based upon the covenant stipulations. I know it seems weird. He seems like he's boasting. God, I did this. God, I didn't do that. God, I gave to the people who are in need. No. It's based on the promises and based on the covenant. God had said, if you do these things, I'll bless you. And so what he's saying is, God, you said you do these things. If I do these things, now bless us. That would have been a prayer of faith for old covenant Israel based on the covenant promises. Now, brethren, when we pray, we pray based on the finished work of Christ. God, help us, answer us, give us strength, help us not, you know, we based uh, we pray God's thoughts back to him. And that's what the Israelite would have been doing here. Even though it's about life in the land, there are still promises. Israel, you do this, you'll get good things. And this is important as we transition to blessings and curses starting next week and spending some time there. Good things for doing what's right, calamity for doing what is wrong. So that really is a prayer of faith and trust in this covenant stipulations. And the covenant promises God gave for Israel as a body politic. Look down and answer. And again, a land flowing with milk and honey, referring to Yahweh, who is who he is, from Exodus chapter 3. So they were supposed to bring that to them. What they offered to God was their money. But also what they were to offer to God is their obedience. Verses 16 and 19. Again, the failures of the first generation is supposed to be a lesson for the second. And there's a lot of mirroring here between uh, Deuteronomy 26 and Exodus 19. Exodus 19, when God brings them up and chooses them and says, you'll be a holy nation. There's a lot of parallels with that. And even in Exodus 19, do this and you shall receive the benefits. Uh, So a lot of mirroring there from Egypt to Canaan or Sinai to Canaan. But notice verse 16. This day, the Lord your God commands you. So again, for that second generation about to enter in to observe these statutes and judgments. 
Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. This is from the Shema. Does anybody know where the Shema is? Yeah. You know, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Where, where is that? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6. 4. Deuteronomy 6. That's right. Thanks, Tim. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. That's right. Deuteronomy. That's a good one to remember. That's Israel's creed. So that's a good one to know in our heart of hearts. Uh, and so that definitely alludes back to that very thing. Uh, you shall observe and be careful to do all of these commandments with all your heart and with all of your soul. That's the essence of the law as well. They were supposed to do it with all their heart and with all their soul. Now, Israel fails to do it with all their heart and all their soul, and therefore they are removed from that land. And so they had to keep the statutes and judgments. Again, statutes, judgments, keep these very things. Again, similar uh, to book ending also with uh, Deuteronomy 12. But notice verse 17. Today. You have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. So covenant language. And that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes. Again, there's covenant renewal going on here. Covenant ratification happening here. Again, that's another reason it's mirroring Sinai. Uh, there, we're going to move into ratification in 27. And there shall be some more ratification uh, renewal in 29 as well. The second generation, the first generation failed. Remember the first generation in Deuteronomy 24, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll do all the book of the covenant. That's fine. We'll keep the commandments. God, we'll do it. What happens seven chapters later? I mean, there's a big calf and they're all dancing around that golden calf. I mean, how quickly they stumbled. And remember too, that God knows that very thing and reminds them and tells them, you know what? You, you're not very strong. And if it's not based on who they are, it's not based on anything good within them, but it's based on the fact that God chose them. Deuteronomy 7 and it's not based on their own righteousness. Deuteronomy 9, because in Deuteronomy 9, he goes through the fact that they worshipped that golden calf. So they must obey. They must do what is said uh, as the covenant God, uh, as co the covenant people. And also verse 18, today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. So this is Deuteronomy or Exodus 19 uh, with Deuteronomy 7 and 9. And he says, at just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments. I mean, he said that like a bunch of times. Uh, just some, It's always good when they repeat things for us. And that he will set you, notice what will happen, if he will set you above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. It wasn't just about life for them in the land, but also to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. You see this in Deuteronomy 4 as well, where Yahweh says that uh, 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 people will look at you and go, wow, there must be wisdom and understanding in that land. Who is their God? Israel was supposed to spread the glory of God. Adam was supposed to spread the glory of God. They all fail in spreading the glory and name of God most high. And Jeremiah indicts them for this very reason. In Jeremiah 13, they do not spread the name of the Lord God Most High. They don't bring about its universal application or universal implication. Uh, instead, they fail miserably and do not keep, you know, they don't care for the fatherless and the widow and the, and the stranger in the land. They do not worship God aright. They worship 
the Baals rather than Yahweh. They forgot. They forgot all that he had done. They were supposed to spread his name that they might be high above all nations in those very things. That you may be holy people, the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Now, thankfully, there is restoration. There is universal spreading of God's glory. Uh, but that comes not in Old Covenant Israel. That comes in Christ, right? And it comes in the church, which is his body, which is the new Israel. And in fact, there's a lot of spread to the Gentiles in Isaiah. Isaiah speaks about this often in the later chapters. But Isaiah 61, you know, Isaiah 61 is all talking about Christ, uh, who is the one in whom the spirit comes upon. And in Luke 4, he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. It's all found and completed and finished in him. But in, Deut uh, in Isaiah, or Isaiah, as the British like to say, in Isaiah uh, verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the, the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. It happens in Christ, but it happens throughout the ends of the earth. It happens in the book of Acts. It happens in Romans. It happens that the gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Greek. See, Christ fulfills and does what Adam could not do, and he does what Israel could not do. And the church then is now what? A chosen race, a royal priesthood. I mean, that's the language in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he goes on to talk about how the people shine as lights. You know how they shine as lights? They don't. Uh, it's based on uh, living in a right and godly way. That's how we shine as lights in this world. This is how we worship God. And this is, you know, how we can apply it. How do we worship God? And there's two ways in our private life and in our public life. Shocker. I'm sure everyone could have seen that coming from a mile away because we speak about that often like a broken record. But First uh, Peter 1, 1 Peter 2. Beloved, uh, 2.11, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. How we glorify God in our private lives is through our personal conduct. Not to be saved, but because we have been redeemed. We do so in the strength of the Spirit. We do so with much patience and forgiveness. But we must live in a manner consistent with the gospel, right? To shine as a light in this world. First Peter 4, 16, he says the same, something similar. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this very manner. How we glorify God is, again, our uh, mundane, ordinary living. Submission to government, submission to masters, uh, husbands and wives, bearing up in suffering, uh, suffering for Christ's sake, you know, pastors and shepherds, being humble. That's how we glorify God. And also, I mean, Romans 12, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our Christ sacrificed his body 
our life ought to be a living sacrifice in our bodies. We ought not to grumble and complain. Philippians 2. You know, we often pray, let us shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. You know what he says in Philippians 2 before he says that? Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't murmur, which is, I struggle with murmuring and grumbling and complaining. I am a terrible light to the people around me. I have to, you know, ask, always ask for forgiveness for that very thing. But we complain all the time. That's not shining as a light in a crooked and perverse generation. Ephesians 5, walk in love just as Christ loved you and was a sweet smelling aroma. The implication there is our body and life is a sacrifice to God. That is how we honor God in our daily life. But also cheerful giving. I will say that I know I've hit that already. Second Corinthians 8, Philippians 4. That's another way we honor God uh, as the individual Christian. Giving to God what he has first given to us. So we honor him in our daily life. That's how we glorify God. And then lastly, this is where we're coming to an end, is the weekly gatherings. The Lord does love the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. We come in and praise him and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs unto him that stir one another up to and encourage us. We see the proclamation of his word and who he is and what he has done, the reminders of who he is and what he has done. And that's also how we spread his glory throughout the ends of the earth. Isn't that the Great Commission? Go therefore, enroll his disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded them. That's the role and purpose of the church of Jesus Christ, or at least it ought to be. Through faithful preaching, faithful proclamation, faithful reminders for God's people of who Christ is and what he has done. That's why we gather. That's how we gather. How we gather is we get up, we get in our cars, and we drive to the place where we worship. And, you know, thankfully, we have AC. We have AC. We have, you know, we can listen to nice things along the way. Uh, I know it's so far sometimes, but we have those good benefits, right? God has given us good benefits in this part of the world that we get to enjoy, that we get to use along the way. I know it's hard to find a church when we find it. Faithfulness is important for it is a good thing. And it should be viewed as a blessing. And the reason it should be viewed as a blessing, brethren, has Christ not forgiven you? Has Christ not forgiven you of all your sins? Has Christ not died for all of your sins and redeemed you? And if so, should we not worship? And if we consider all that the Savior has done for us, we should not be absent unless providentially hindered. And I mean really, really providentially hindered. Worship is a blessing. Worship is a gift. And if I may just kind of confess and confide a concern I've had, not necessarily with our church, but just observing the world around us. It seemed like during COVID, there was this no church, we need to find church, and there was a focus on that. It seems we're growing fat in the land again, and we're forgetting 
the importance of gathering and other trivial things are taking the place of gathering with the saints and gathering with God most high. We really are fickle, forgetful people. We ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves even as the day approaches. We ought to gather with the saints. Christ has forgiven us and also Christ speaks to us. Christ speaks to us and nourishes us in his word. That is the pinnacle. That is the importance. That's why the word is central, because that is the pinnacle of worship. Christ speaking to you and feeding you with his word. And whoever preaches the word faithfully, we ought to come not to hear that person, but to hear Christ. I don't care if they're monotonous. I don't care if they get things mixed up. I don't, I don't care. If they preach the word of God faithfully, they ought, we ought to be under the word of God. For Christ has said he would speak to his people. Something happens when we worship, when we do ourselves a disservice, when we are not there. And also, we deprive ourselves of a glimpse and foretaste of heaven. Because you see, brethren, one day when we get to heaven, we won't be able to hold back our praise. We are, still have remaining corruption in this part. We still struggle in this part. But there will be a time where we will worship God without tiredness, without weariness, but world without end. For we shall sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the benefits and the blessings in Christ Jesus, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We know, O oh God, that we are forgetful of these so often, forgetful of our standing, forgetful of the grounds for our salvation, forgetful of our Savior, forgetful of the gospel, forgetful of sanctification, forgetful of what we need in this Christian life, forgetful of forgiveness, forgetful of uh, how we ought to live. We so often uh, fall, so, so often sin, so often struggle with the re remaining corruption we have as the spirit wrestles against the flesh. But we pray, O oh God, that we would lay hold of Christ and what he has done for us. Lay hold upon the finished work in him. Lay hold upon Christ and him crucified in his work in that gospel, blessed gospel. And we pray as redeemed saints, as redeemed sinners, that we would live in a manner consistent with your word. We would not grumble or complain. We would bear suffering, that we would uh, shine as lights, that we would honor you and walk in love, that we would be a sweet smelling aroma, that we would uh, cheerfully give because you've given so much to us. Even Christ, though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. So may we honor and praise you in our giving. May we honor and praise you in our conduct. And may we honor and praise you in our worship. Please forgive us, O oh God, especially for not doing any of those things, but especially for taking worship for granted. So often, O oh God, we forget. And we pray that we would never forget. May we never forget who you are. May we never forget what you've done. May we never forget the benefit and blessings you have given us in Christ. And we do long for the time when Christ comes back and we shall sing with the saints of heaven, world without end, 
when we shall sing your praises without weariness, without heaviness, uh, when all our tears shall be wiped away. Thank you, O God, for the hope that we have in Christ. And may we be reminded of that this coming Lord's Day. Thank you for your mercy and grace. In the name of Christ, amen. Mm -hmm.